You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, We have a huge, special all-star guest with us today. His name is, <laughs> he could be the most popular person I've ever had on this podcast. And uh, he is, and, and he pays me to say that, by the way. So, Mr. Matt <laughs> Klein, how you doing today, Matt? What's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Uh, for those of you guys who don't know, Matt is one of the owners of Exodus Trail Cameras, and uh, he's uh, him and uh, his partners and their company are the title sponsor of this podcast, and I love their product, so blah, 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 blah. But uh, Matt, how we doing, man? Dude, I'm doing good, man. It's like one of those... 70 degree bluebird days in Ohio right now. And <laughs> I spent all weekend kind of getting my food plots prepped at a new farm. And, uh, you know, we got some rain in the forecast. I'm going to be doing some seeding tomorrow and kind of feeling like, uh, everything's the way it should be in the world right now, you know? Good, good. From, uh, from, a How about food you? Plot, from a food plot, uh, point of view or just for, for life in general? everything man just a lot of stuff coming together we got a new camera coming out here in the next two weeks and just uh you know you try to take in those moments when everything seems right and and it's not uh it's not all hell breaking loose at all times you know (laughs) i hear that man um so food plots just for a quick second how many how many food plots uh you got going in what are you planting well it's funny because uh you know you and i have talked about this quite a few times is that Chad and I, we kind of pride ourselves and we're these big woods, you know, deer hunters that where we typically hunt is like a hundred thousand acre block of timber that has, you know, no ag anywhere nearby. And I actually moved about 30 miles, uh, away from, from the area that I typically hunt this year. So, um, with that, I kind of lucked into a farm that I've got permission on now and I kind of, you know, my kids are getting a little older. My wife has been begging me to get out and do some hunting. So with this farm, we, we thought we'd go out and plant some plots this year and actually manage a property right. And, and uh, I think that's where I'll probably spend most of my early season is kind of bouncing around this farm. And then 
in the rut, I think we'll head back down to the big woods. But we've got uh, we just we just kind of um, rough cut in to a a big overgrown CRP type field, uh, a two and a half acre bean field that I'm planting right now. Uh, as of tomorrow, I'm planting, and then uh, we we kind of align the property with some with some secluded little kill plots that kind of kind of are right on the edge of the bedding that'll go into this big kind of destination plot. And, um, man, just from the layout right now, it looks really cool. And I, I don't know what the potential is on this farm. Um, you know, we just put cameras out this weekend, but, uh, I'm telling you, uh, it's got all, it's got all the makings of a, of a really world-class whitetail farm. So I'm excited about that. Is that in, uh, Ohio? Yeah. Yeah. Southeast Ohio. Nice, nice. Uh, how big is this particular piece of property? It's 120 acres, so it's kind of different too because you know we're used to hunting a lot of public land and and not only public land but kind of like uh, you know private, open to the public type stuff. And um, so 120 acres is kind of like nothing. You know, there's no room to move around on it. But at the same time, like when you can control things. And you can manage somewhat. It, it's it's a pretty decent sized piece of property, so I'm excited about it. What's the uh, timber ag makeup? It's about well, see here in this area, we're kind of in the hill country of Ohio, so the the general area around this farm um, is very very heavily wooded. Um, but I'm kind of in this creek bottom area where there's actually a decent amount of ag. Um, this farm is about I'd say 65, 35 timber to open. And it actually is in an easement to where there's, it's kind of under conservation. So it can't be farmed um, by the way the property is needed. So everything that used to be like open farm fields are now these like CRP type overgrown uh, bedding areas basically. So it's pretty cool. Um, the far, the surrounding farms are basically, you know, your typical 40 to 60 or 50, 50 ag to timber. And, and, uh, I wouldn't call it big agriculture cause I've hunted out, you know, Illinois and Missouri, uh, places where there really is big agriculture. This is kind of, this is kind of what I consider the perfect mix of ag to timber for, for big whitetails. Awesome. So, uh, you're pretty excited about this farm, huh? Is it when you when you went yeah, into when you ended up going in and trying to? I mean, did you? How did you fall into this farm? Not like permission? Is it a lease? Yeah, it's a friend of mine that manages this farm and and um, and oversees it. And I kind of kind of by uh, twisting his arm a little bit, he manages a bunch of different farms in the area, and it's kind of part of his job. And um, I, uh, I, this house happened that I, I just moved into happened to be like right next to this farm. And, you know, so I started prying him with questions about it and I had kind of located it on Onyx maps and he manages these farms for one specific landowner. So I got on Onyx maps and I saw that that landowner had this farm right next to me. And, uh, you know, so I started, I started prying questions to him, like who's hunting it, you know, (laughs) what's going on down there? What's you know, is, uh, is there any way I could slip in there? And, um, needless to say, I, uh, I kind of weaseled my way in there. Nice. Nice. So it's not only sometimes a piece of property, do, you know? right? So sometimes it's not, it's not always, or it's not just a good property. It's also close to your house. 
oh, it's right out my back door. That's the beauty of it. So, you know, my son's four now. So I'm going to get a blind set up to be able to take him out and kind of let him watch some deer basically. But, uh, but I'd be lying if I said I didn't think there was real potential for a big deer here too, you know? Right. For sure. For sure. Man, that's, uh, it's always fun to find a, a good piece of property that, uh, you're not in any rush getting to or having to leave for any, any real circumstances. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's nice, man. I, um, I traveled to hunt for so many years. I grew up in, I think we talked about on one of the podcasts, but I grew up on the East coast. And, you know, when I really got serious about hunting mature whitetails, my home state just wasn't, didn't have it. And so I've been so used to traveling five plus hours to hunt whitetails for the last seven years, um, since I got married that, it's just, it's kind of been second nature. And you know, you almost miss it sometimes because there's something about that ride out to where, where you're hunting. Like that's, uh, that's cool. You know, like the anticipation yep. buildup, but there's something about that ride home when you're, <laughs> when you're empty handed <laughs> that, uh, that I don't miss about that either. That's a fact, man. Well, we're going to get into some of this other stuff, uh, a little later on in the podcast, but you know, I want to talk about this new camera that you got coming out today, or it's uh, coming out in the next couple of weeks. And uh, I really want to dive into, you know, the thought process of, you know, where what you guys wanted to improve on your last camera and talk about the specs a little bit, talk about why you guys are excited um, uh, about this camera. But I think the first question that I want to ask is, you know, you're, you're still a new company, you know, you got your, you had your first camera come out. How did you feel that camera performed, uh, for you guys, you know, for your initial product offering? Well, the lift was our baby. You know, we, we set out to build this company about two and a half years ago and we just celebrated our, uh, our second birthday on May 16th of, uh, being public, I guess you'd say to selling and, and kind of advertising to the public. Um, and about more like two and three quarter years ago, about two years and nine months ago, we kind of came up with the idea for this company and, and really the lift was kind of a byproduct of everything we wanted to see. Um, you know, at that time and even still today, you know, nobody's really kind of come at us to to also solve this problem is we just wanted to see high quality built cameras that didn't have to cost a lot of money and and when we set out on day one was to kind of solve that problem and the lift really it it did it it did in a lot of ways solve that problem what uh what we kind of face is a learning curve because we've never built a trail camera before and the engineers that we worked with on this had uh had built some really cool products in in other industries but trail cameras were kind of new to them and when we launched down this road it was kind of it was a learning process for all of us what we knew was we wanted to take the longevity and 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 kind of quality build uh mindset out of some of these other industries like the you know, construction tool industry and, and, uh, the military spec industry, taking some of the qualities of this longevity mindset and bringing it into the hunting industry was something that we wanted to do from day one. And I think that's kind of what our main goal was in building the lift. And, uh, you know, when we launched it, learning through all of that, I think that looking back, we definitely, we served that mission, you know, our five-year warranty and everything we do there is still well and alive. And we're really excited that, you know, now being 
having shipped cameras for two years, we have a very low return rate and, and everything's great there. What we've kind of done is we put out a camera, the best camera that we could performance wise at the time, which was pretty much best in class in a lot of categories, or at least top three in a lot of categories. And what we've done is we've listened to the customers that have kind of supported our mission and, and kind of gotten behind us. And we've taken that and put into this new camera, kind of building off that that quality base on the camera, building it well, and then taking the high-end performance options that we were seeing, not only in this industry, but in other camera industries, um, and putting that into a trail camera for Gen 2. And it's kind of cool to, to look back and see what the lift did for us and what we were able to do with it in, in our first two years. But this new camera, what it really does is kind of takes that and then all the things that were nice to have that we thought would be cool to add on moving forward. And we've brought that to the table. So we're pretty, we're pretty pumped about it. Okay. So feedback, not only as a, you know, you and Chad, you come up with this trail camera and in order to become better, you have to be critical on yourself and the product. What were some things that the, the initial camera that you wanted that you felt needed to be tweaked for this, this new camera? What were you critical about on, on this first camera? Well, when we launched the lift, um, one of the things that happened was we launched it and were very competitive on, uh, a lot of categories. But what happened was we were right in a, right on a tilting point for the industry to where a lot of new technology kind of came into the industry in a six month period there. So all of a sudden, like our, our detection circuit, our trigger speed, um, detection distance and, and circuit quality, um, became kind of middle of the road, I guess you'd say. And that's been one of the biggest things that I think people have been critical of is like, well, there's a lot of cameras now that are, you know, sub 0.7 second trigger speeds that are down into that half second range. And, and we were up there at about one second. And, and that's kind of been one piece of, of criticism that we've gotten really for the last 12 months because a lot of cameras made that jump into, you know, a sub one second speed. When we launched, we were kind of right there with everybody else and then it quickly kind of everybody started to figure out how to get faster. That's one of the things that we've solved with the Gen 2 is, you know, we kind of left everything with the core, you know, PCB board and functionality of the camera alone. And we've gone into these individual pieces and kind of started from the ground up. So our detection circuit was one of those. We got really, really in depth with trying to build a really good detection circuit on a camera. So the new one's clocking in at about 0.4 seconds, which is you know, is right up there with the best. There's not a lot of room for improvement in the market right now. I mean, you know, we got cameras ranging from 0.1 and 0.2 seconds up to up to a second, and there's not a lot of difference there. You know, when it comes to trying to capture pictures of whitetails, um, so we're right up there with the best. I think at 0.4 seconds with this new camera, our detection quality is kind of what can't. You know, you really can't put a number on the consistency and the accuracy of a detection circuit. And that's one of the things we're really proud of with the new camera is just we know that we're not going to miss a picture off of a false trigger type situation with this new camera because of the, the amount of work that we've put into and the quality componentry that we've put into it. So then not only you guys being critical and, and digging into what upgrades you felt, how much customer feedback did you take into consideration 
when it was time to make this Gen 2? So much. <laughs> Actually, the day that we started really getting into development of Gen 2, the day we kind of pulled the trigger on the project and put a big deposit down and kind of got really serious um, with our team was uh, we sent out an email to all of our existing customers and basically said, what do you like? What do you not like? And um, it was a really, really constructive process, actually, because, you know, being a business owner, sometimes you feel like it's your baby that's out there. And, you know, when people are critical of it, it's like somebody's making fun of your kid, you know. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and so you have to kind of you have to kind of remove that remove that feeling of uh, insecurity away and say, look, we want, if we want to build the best camera that we can, we've got to let people be honest with us. And we sent a, we sent a big survey out to um, about 6,000 people, and um, we got a lot of response back on that. And we actually had a lot of like very back-and-forth conversations with some of, our, some of our customers that really wanted to participate. And um, that was one of the coolest things that, that we did with this new camera is being able to look at it and say, okay, this is, this is a correlation of what people want. You know, obviously we can't go after every little one-time request, but when, when 5, 10, 20 people are requesting something, that's when we want to take a look and figure out what it is, you know, that we need to be focused on. And that's kind of what, what we put into this new camera is everything that we got any kind of repetitive response on we took a very hard look at and that's kind of what we we used as um the the fuel for moving forward so other than the trigger speed as you mentioned what were some of those other uh um, i guess categories that uh, your customers were critical of uh it's a great question so one of the big ones was video quality and you know when we launched this camera uh the the original camera the lift gen one um None of us were really using video as a tool for, for, you know, we wanted to build a scouting tool more than, you know, a camera to take pretty pictures, I guess you'd say. Mm -hmm. And none of us were using trail cameras on video mode to really learn whitetails. And one of the things that we heard a lot was that guys are really starting to use video mode as a tool to, to kind of pattern these whitetails. It's not just a cool thing to have anymore. It's something that people are really getting serious about. And so we went into our chipset, our lens, our processor um, on the interior componentry of the camera and figured out how we could get the best quality video out of the trail camera that we could. And then on top of that, we put a really nice microphone into the camera to make sure that, you know, we all see these, you know, viral videos on Facebook when somebody catches a buck that's chasing a doe, grunting its head off and, and on a trail camera video, and it's the coolest thing ever. So we wanted to be able to build a camera that could do that really well. Um, so that was one of the other cool things that came out of our, our customer survey that we did. Um, uh, along with video quality was just picture quality. Um, you know, we had pretty darn good pictures on the Gen 1 compared to the industry. Um, but there were, there were, you know, requests as getting detailed as, hey, when I put the camera on a field edge, um, in November, whenever there's no leaves on the trees, it's, it's, I'm getting kind of dark pictures at sunset, like that kind of thing, getting really right. detailed with the camera. And so we took a look at some of these things and we figured out that, well, yeah, you're right. We went out, like we had a lease in Illinois this past year and we did a lot of testing on that. The year before that, we were running all of our cameras in the big woods. So when we were testing them, 
all of our pictures didn't have that problem because there were no field edges. So when we opened the door to hear from other people, it was kind of cool what we heard. I want to elaborate on that uh, just a little bit. You know, a majority of deer move right at that, that, you know, it's not quite dark yet and it's not light out. You know what I mean? And that's where in my history and my experience with trail cameras, that's where a lot of them fail. What did, what do you guys do to kind of, I guess, approach that problem and then, I guess, fix it so that the qualities at that dusk and dawn time frame are clear enough to, I guess, recognize what's on the, on the picture. Absolutely. You know, it's funny too, because if you would have asked us about a year ago, we thought we were really good at this. And what happens is at what we call transition between day and night, um, when, when the camera's filter flips, you know, the IR cut filter flips and the camera goes from day mode to night mode, uh, right at sunset or sunrise. We are really good at that. We've gotten it down to science is the fact that, and it really just comes down to tuning. It's like being a photographer and, you know, in the field and saying, okay, you know, and you've ran camera before for, for, you know, hunting footage is, all right, well, my ISO is a little bit too high. So my picture is a little grainy or that kind of thing you know, my ISO or my aperture or my shutter speed is a little too fast. It's the same thing with these cameras. The problem is the camera has to make those decisions for itself. So we have to put a lot of programming into the software of the camera to be able to make the right decisions in those, in those kind of 15 to 20 minute periods before when it's really not quite light or dark enough to fire the flash, but it's, it's still a little too, dark to kind of leave it on normal mode well what we figured out was like on a field edge in the midwest when this would happen the ir cut filter there was just quite still enough light that the ir cut filter wasn't turning on or turning off and what happens is in the big woods it's dark enough by the time that you know dust comes around because the tree canopy that that ir cut filter flips and so we figured out that in the Midwest that wasn't happening, and that's something we've taken care of with the new camera. But, but it's really just figuring out the tuning, and it's, it's just like going into a photographer's camera and saying, okay, and, and it's just software program to say that, okay, when the light meter on the camera is reading this much light, we want the ISO to go down to you know, this number, and we want the shutter speed to be this, and we want, um, we want the, uh, the flash to fire. We don't want the flash to fire. And it's really just figuring out that formula that kind of makes everything bright enough that we can make out what we're looking at, but there's not any noise and, and, uh, and haze and that kind of thing. Right. So I talked with Chad uh, a while back, and he, he was talking to me about how you guys were currently testing. This was a while ago. You were in testing mode for this new camera. What is your testing mode look like? I mean, how, how long of a period is it? Um, what are you actually testing when you are getting ready to say, okay, this camera is ready to be introduced to the public? Yeah, that's a great question, man. The biggest thing is when you're writing a new uh, firmware program for a camera like this, you have to go through and make sure there's no bugs. And a lot of times when you write the first pass, 
at a program like this. There will be a lot of little bugs that are hard to catch, if, if that makes sense. So yeah. it's just like what I was just talking about is, okay, well, you know, our, our light meter read that it was this and the flash didn't fire. So we had to go back. So it's going through one by one and it takes a, it takes about 20 people to kind of go through this and catch things that I wouldn't have catch, caught or Chad wouldn't have caught, but you know, this guy catches and, and, and we have a process for that that we kind of go through what we call punch list. And, and so basically we write the, we write the base firmware of a program and then the testing is really just going through and making sure they're sure that there's no bugs in that program. Once we kind of get all, all the major bugs, then the testing goes into what we call phase two and it goes into that taking the camera out into every single situation that we can think that it'll be in and making sure that it's going to perform the way that it's supposed to. All right. So from that's from like the internal type of components. Now, what about how do you test your durability? Well, actually, we use uh, a lot of times we use third party labs for that kind of stuff. Um, and I don't know if you've ever seen like sometimes I've seen like a scope manufacturer back in the day had a commercial where they showed how they test their scopes. You know, they nitrogen purge it. And then they take it through this like simulation process where it gets like banged all around and then like it simulates, you know, a hundred thousand shots fired through it and that kind of thing. So we do a lot of lab testing for that kind of stuff. And, you know, we, um, as we look to expand the company and we look to bring in outside help to, to kind of grow Exodus here in the last year, that was one of the big questions we got asked a lot is how can you, how can you know that your camera is going to last as long as you do? And, and, and really, it's just about overbuilding it as far as like, you know, if we want it to last five years, we need to, la- we need to, we need to build it to last 10. And that's the kind of thing. And then after that, we do a third-party test um, uh, to go through simulations of radiation and IR exposure for being out in the sun for five to 10 years for, you know, we, we do water tests and, and dunk tests to make sure that it's going to be able to withstand water for five to 10 years. And, and all of these things kind of add up, but, uh, but yeah, it's a lot of third party testing and lab type research. Okay. Now, you know, you offer your five-year warranty, you offer your, um, theft replacement policy where, you know, if someone steals it, you're going to give them uh, the option to buy a, another camera at 50% off, right? Yes. Okay. How many, did, did a lot of people take advantage of, of those offers that you, uh, that you extended towards your customers? Well, the really the only one that can be taken advantage of truly is the theft, uh, damage yeah. replacement, you know, the five-year warranty, if the camera's broken, we can usually tell if it's, you know, if it's, if somebody hit it with a sledgehammer, you know, right. and, uh, but on the theft damage replacement side, you know, you'd be really surprised. Um, we have a very, very, very low amount, uh, of replacements to date compared to how many cameras that we have in circulation. Right. Um, you know, Will that get worse as we go along? I don't know. Maybe. You know, I think the people who have kind of bought into our brand at this point, we're still such a young, new, small company that I think most of the people who have kind of tried us out are people who really believe in what we're doing. You know, when you hit kind of mass appeal and, and you're, a, you're a mainstream brand, 
do people not care about you as much that they'll take advantage of you? Maybe. I don't know. But I'll say this. Again, it's only once per purchase. So, you know, when somebody buys a camera, if they come to us and say, hey, it was stolen, then, you know, we give them a camera 50% off. We lose a little bit of money on that. People think that we still make money there, but we don't. We actually lose a little bit of money there, but not enough that it's going to drive us out of business. Because it's not like you can call us every year and say, hey, that camera was stolen again, and we've got to shell out, you know, another camera every single year. So it's not... It's not a dangerous thing for us, and there's a lot of upside. I think a lot of people buy into that. A lot of people think uh, – I, I think they trust our brand a little bit more because we're willing to do that. And to us, that upside is well worth the downside, which is that, yeah, somebody's probably eventually going to take advantage of it. Right. Okay. Now, me and you had a conversation a while back about the exterior uh, the, the, the shell of the actual trail, trail camera. What improvements mm-hmm. have you made on that? Well, you know, the biggest thing is, um, now the camera shell is exactly the same. So we've launched this on the same molding and, and shell as the camera before. What has changed is one, our camouflage pattern. So we actually customized and built our own camouflage pattern, which we're calling Exodus escape. And we did a lot of tests on this pattern. You know, it's kind of the little, the littlest thing, like you ask most people and a trail camera's camo pattern really doesn't matter that much to them, but it's kind of one of those little things that we really wanted to get right. Um, we did a lot of tests on this pattern and in a deer hunting setting, this, this pattern was the hardest to find that we did, that we tested. Um, so we're pretty excited about that. It looks pretty cool. Um, it's got a neat look to it. Uh, the new camera's pretty sharp looking. Um, and then we've put some new coatings on the camera, which, which should, um, we should keep our pattern longer. We had we had a couple issues with the first camera with uh, fading. You know, the camera would kind of lose its luster after a while, yep. um, after a couple winters. The new camera, we've done some we've done some new UV coatings, uh, some new technology that's just come out there that I think is going to keep this pattern for a very long time. So it should be pretty cool on that. Gotcha. So aside from everything that we've already talked about in this in this uh, Gen two camera. What were some, I mean, did you have anything on your plate or on a sheet of paper that's like, okay, we've addressed these issues. All right. We've made these categories better, but now I want to get, we want to be the best at a specific thing, or we want to, we want to flex our muscles in, in this particular area. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, to us, it's this video photo quality thing, which a lot of companies are getting really good at right now. So I think it's going to be tough competition. But I think like what what honestly is ultimately going to set Exodus apart is our value proposition. Um, you know, our consumer model, uh, our warranty program, and our, our our theft damage replacement. Like naturally, that's where we're really focused is building a really great product for a really great price point. So I think that's where our competitive advantage will always be based um, and, and kind of where our core focus will continue to be. We have, you know, so many plans for the future and I think that's where we kind of keep our heart bound to. So that's kind of core one, but beyond that, like this new video thing, dude, it, it's so cool. <laughs> I, I cannot wait to the rut to put some of these video cameras on, um, 
on some scrapes like in the big woods where we hunt. I think it's going to be sweet just to get the quality of videos that we're going to get from a $200 camera, you know, and not having to pay five, $600 for great video quality. Right. So are you guys still comparing an Exodus trail camera to the, the big dogs in the industry? Oh, a hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. That's, that's no question in my mind. In fact, I think, Again, I think that you could compare us with anybody in the industry right now um, that you think is the best. And frankly, it's constantly changing. But we're going to be right there with them, if not better in some categories. And the big thing to us is just kind of maintaining that, maintaining that price point where we are, we're not going to ever be cheap because you can't build a product for, to do what we're doing with it, to be as, you know, to be as well built as we want to build them and be, you know, in the bargain bin at a retailer. Like that's not our model, but we still want to remain affordable enough that, you know, to the average consumer, um, to the guys who literally were like us before we launched Exodus, working construction, that kind of thing, young kids at home that we don't have to break the bank to buy our cameras. That's kind of our core proposition is just driving home being the best or right up there with the best and doing it in a much better more efficient business model to make it more affordable. Gotcha. So uh, do you guys in the future ever see yourself making that? And I think you've already answered this question, but a lot of the guys that I talk with, you know, and, and I'll pre I'll pre preface this with a, a comment that, you know, everybody wants the highest possible quality for the lowest possible dollar amount, right? It's like it's like yeah. buying a used car, right? I, <clears throat> I want this. I want this fifty thousand dollar truck, but I want it for twelve thousand dollars, right? Absolutely. You're just, you're just not going to get it, right? And certain companies do that, and cer certain companies don't. Do, does Exodus in the future ever see itself making a fifty dollar trail camera or a even more expensive a hundred dollar trail camera to to reach out to the people who who want that we're honestly that's a great question dan because we're considering it hard right now and that might be a great question for the listeners you know if, if that's some kind of survey is we're we're considering and it's not going to be sub 100 dollars. we're talking like a hundred uh, 150 dollars somewhere in there um but we are really considering it. The problem is we don't know if we can offer a full five-year warranty on it. It would be like a two- or three-year warranty, still with our theft damage replacement stuff. But I'd be anxious to hear what people's thoughts are on it because, to me, it still makes sense. It's still going to be a really well-built camera. But we just can't put the same level of componentry that we put in our five-year cameras that we can in a you know $125 price tag. So that would be a great question. Would that be attractive to your listeners to do a $125 camera with a three-year warranty um, with the same theft damage replacement policy and still building a really quality camera? It probably will still last five years. We just can't, you know, you can't guarantee that the way we do with our five-year cameras and everything that we put into them for that price tag. So we're right on the fence with it, honestly. We, <laughs> it costs a good bit of money to put out a camera, and that's kind of part of the problem. Um, is just knowing like, hey, are people going to be mad at us? Are they going to be pissed that we stepped away from that five-year warranty to put out a cheaper camera? And that's kind of one of the big questions of business, right, is, is kind of having those debates and, and figuring out if it makes sense to do. 
but that's one of the debates that we're we're pretty on the fence about, and we could go either way here pretty quickly. All right, and now the question that I get from almost everybody who reaches out to me asking, you know, whether or not they should buy a uh, an Exodus trail camera. When are you guys going to come out with a wireless trail camera? That's the question I get uh, uh, probably two or three times a week. Well, that's next in the pipeline, and it's already it's already in development. Um, the biggest thing that we're going through right now is to uh, is to kind of navigate the waters on the certification thing with the networks for one, because a lot of you know a lot of new companies. What we've seen is they'll put out a camera kind of under the radar, so to speak. It's not kind of in the mainstream big box retailer type stuff. And you can kind of get away with not going through all the certification processes that these networks require. Um, but that's not really our style. If we put something out, we want it to be, you know, a, we want it to be a mainstream product. We want it to be a well-designed and thought out product. And we don't want the network one day to say, Hey, you didn't pay your certification costs and all that stuff. And we're, uh, we're disabling all these devices, which is a real thing that can happen. So it's a lot of money to get certified by these networks and it's a lot of testing and and ongoing stuff. We're in the process of doing that right now. Um, and we're, we're kind of getting to the point where we're looking ahead and seeing kind of the finish line with this thing. But, uh, but we're hoping that late this year, early next year, we're kind of right there. And, uh, it just depends on the networks. Um, it depends on how fast we get certified and, and how fast we can kind of get a quality product out there. But the product is in the works. Um, we get that question more than any other one too. And it's funny how much that question has popped up more this year than even last year. I think the demand for those wireless cameras is getting more and more every year. Well, I think the first wireless trail camera I bought was $450. And to me, I really had to stretch to buy that. Um, you know, and it's, it's more complicated device. It's a, it's a more of a, a commitment to the, the end user to purchase something like that. So there's, there makes no sense to rush a product like that and only have it perform half assed Absolutely. And it's a very fine line with these wireless devices. Um, if you get it right, you do great, but you got to put a lot of work into making sure that it goes right. Um, otherwise the back end customer support becomes a nightmare. Um, and for a small company like us, it's not that like, honestly, I wish that we had one out right now. I wish that every time somebody asked me that question, I could give them a link to say, Hey, here it is. Check it out. We're not quite there yet. We're trying to make this step cautiously and make sure that it's the right step for Exodus and it's not going to be one of those things that sets us back instead of moving us forward. But, uh, you know, if I had to give a time frame right now, I'd say end of this year, early next year. Um, but again, it all comes down to the networks. We thought that we were going to be there by early this year and the design that we had actually got denied. Um, so we had to go back to the drawing board and it's uh it's not an easy process i'll tell you that much well i know uh myself and a lot of the listeners are looking forward to that now and this is kind of a blindside question and i apologize for for this but <laughs> uh but exodus 
the name of the company isn't Exodus Trail Cameras. It's Exodus Outdoor Gear. To me, that implicates there might be other products coming down the pipeline other than just trail cameras. Is that an accurate statement, or is right now the all the focus on trail cameras? That's a really good question because um, we didn't launch this company to simply be a trail camera company. Um, we think that this direct-to-consumer thing is freaking awesome. I mean, I really do. I, I can't state it enough. All the companies that that really do well with that model um, – they're pro- they're providing better value, and to me, that is the ultimate kind of indicator of whether you're going to be successful in business. What I think is, in order for the direct and consumer market to truly be mainstream, and for guys to truly buy from these direct to consumer companies instead of going to Cabela's first, or to going to you know their local wherever first. I think that it has to be a lot more widespread than just, you know, well, we got a trail camera company and an optics company and a clothing company, but, you know, all these other things kind of fall at the wayside. And we have our eye on really bringing a direct-to-consumer, a full direct-to-consumer retail space to the whitetail market. We really want to provide a place where, you know, a better – there's a better business model for all of the products that we buy as hardcore whitetail hunters. That's kind of phase two, phase three of Exodus. We've, I think we have a lot of problems to solve on the trail camera side first, but yes, that is something that we, we definitely have our eye on. Um, and that's in our master plan of what we see with this company and where we see it going. I, and I hate to put you on the spot here, but is there a, a, a category that you can? You don't even have to share with it what the product is, maybe. But what kind of what what category or market you're kind of looking at next? I know that's long term, but well, that's a great question. It, it's actually probably a lot different than you think. Um, what we foresee is building a building a platform where we could potentially bring a lot of direct-to-consumer brands to one place. And then the places where potentially, I don't know what's going to happen over the next 18 months. New companies are popping up every six months or so, it seems. Yep. So it's not crazy to think that a, you know, a direct-to-consumer tree stand company and direct-to-consumer bow company aren't going to pop up. So I can't, we don't really have you know, a specific category that's like, hey, we want to make tree stands or we want to make what I want to do is I want to look at the places where when we go to launch this platform, we can bring kind of these, these manufacturers together to a place where it's convenient for, for the consumer. And two, I want to look at the places that haven't been explored yet. So if we go to launch and, you know, um, tree stands haven't been explored yet that we can explore that and say, okay, is there a way to make a more affordable, uh, high value, uh, company or product line in this space and do it direct to consumer? And if there is, let's explore that. So it's, there's really no, like, there's no, um, as of today, there's no like, Hey, we want to be a, you know, tree stand company. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's not like that. It's more of what's going to happen over the next 18 months as we grow as a company and we have more resources. We have a vision for building kind of a platform for 
there to hopefully bring some of these companies together and kind of create a retail space for direct-to-consumer brands where there's no retail markup. And then, hey, if when we're doing that, it makes sense for us to launch a line of you know, white tail apparel that's direct to consumer. Maybe, I don't know, but that's just an example. You know, it, right. it could be anything. I don't know. It's just when that day comes, what do we feel confident enough in that we have the people and the skills and the resources to build a better mousetrap, I guess you'd say. And the beauty of the direct to consumer model is I can look at anybody's product and say, okay, for a hundred bucks, you're you're building a product for 25 your markups 25 and then you're selling it to Cabela's and I'm buying it for 100 bucks mm-hmm. well if I eliminate that I can build the same product for 50 or 60 dollars and I can build a lot better product so that's the beauty of the model right. I just think that it, I think that it's looking at the market for the next 12 to 18 months and saying okay what's coming are there any new companies that are already going to solve this problem and if there are so be it like I hope that they succeed but if nobody's solving the problems that we think are big to us as whitetail hunters, then we may very well look at solving some of those. Right. It's funny that you mentioned apparel, and not to necessarily change the subject, but that is one category that Kuyu did it. Everybody saw the success of Kuyu, and now, from a direct to you know direct to consumer standpoint, and now I feel that there's like fourteen, fifteen, probably twenty different companies that are apparel, you know, direct What's funny is, here's the funny thing about business, especially in markets like the hunting industry or the golf industry that people want to be in because it's their hobby. Right. The funny thing about it is when somebody does something and they're successful, instead of looking at that and saying, okay, they did this and they were successful, here's the, here's the lessons that I can take from that and do it in a different way. Like, okay, well, they were successful as a clothing company. Let me be an archery company. They just try to do the exact same thing, and it doesn't make any sense. It's kind of like Yeti coolers. When Yeti launched, you know, they did this new thing. And instead of somebody saying, okay, well, people are buying high-quality coolers, maybe they'll buy high-quality, you know, truck boxes or something like that. Like, right. no, you just have 30 knockoff coolers. <laughs> right. You know, so it's right. like that part of the industry cracks me up. It's like when, some, when, a, when a clever entrepreneur <laughs> solves a problem – Right? right. Everybody else is like, oh, let me profit off that too. And you can look at like what Kuyu's done and look at the business that they've built and say, okay, well, hey, I'm going to do that. And I'm going to do it for the whitetail market or I'm going to do it for, for the archery industry or, you know, and there's room there for everybody, but there's so many imposters and that it just cracks me up. Right. And I, and it's kind of funny because that's from a, from a, a podcast standpoint as well. I feel like there's like a, another podcast yes. coming out every, every three days. And they're interviewing the same people and it's <laughs> the same topic. Amen. Right. Hey, Oh, well, hey, you're the you only what, one. That's, you're the only one that's interviewing me though. So I, you're way and I'm the only one with nine fingers. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so, all right. Five years from now, maybe even longer, 10 years, where do you see Exodus out, Outdoor Gear? That's a, yeah, that's that's a good one, man. I, um, I want to see us kind of 
there's no to me when I look at that, I see us as a thriving operation, obviously, because right. you know, if you're an entrepreneur in business, you don't see like, well, I think we'll still barely be making it by. But I think that we're gonna be successful. I really truly believe that. I, I go to bed every night believing that because of the value proposition that that we're kind of so tied to. I think that as our resources grow, we're going to take that into other places. Not knowing what they are today doesn't worry me because I think there's a lot of places that could go, right? You know, I think I think there's a lot of crosses in the road. Um, but I think that it gets us to a place where as long as we are waking up every day saying, okay, here are the four or five or ten problems that we're trying to solve for whitetail hunters. And here's how we're solving them. We're still in our same, you know, value proposition that we were on day one with wanting to build quality products. I think if we're doing that, we will be a successful company. And I, what I really look forward to is where is the industry going to be in five years? And I think that's where Exodus finds its place. Because to me right now, we're kind of a black sheep in the fact that we don't even want to talk to Cabela's. I, yeah. You know, I have no interest in going there. And that makes us so different than 99.5% of companies that are doing it today because nobody understands why. <laughs> right. Why don't you guys want to do that? And it's because if we did that, we would uh, immediately be, you know, kind of directing or drifting off the path of what we set out to do, which was be a better quality, better, you know, value-driven company. If we're still in five years doing what we're doing today, I think there will be others that are doing it as well, kind of like Maven Optics and people like that. I think that will grow. And I think that the buying habits of whitetail deer hunters will start to slowly change. I think they already are. Oh, yeah. But I think that they're really going to start to change over the next two to three years. And that's where I think ultimately what we want to do is help that change happen, help it evolve, and kind of figure out a figure out a way for this whole you know more efficient business model and this consumer direct thing. We want to help figure out how to make that more streamlined and make it more readily available to white-tailed deer hunters. Make it more cost efficient. You know, if a if a trail camera company came out tomorrow that said we're going to build sixty dollar trail cameras direct to consumer. I think I honestly would post about it on my Facebook and be like, go like these guys' page. This is awesome. Because they're not competing with us. They're competing with Walmart, you know? Yeah. And we need that competition. If people want to buy a cheap trail camera, they're better buying it from somebody who has a better business model than they are from buying it from Walmart. And, and I 100% believe that. So I think over the next five years, you're going to see us kind of be an advocate for that business model and try to really bring it into the light and, and kind of bring it into – um, the mainstream of the hunting industry. Gotcha. Well, that's a, that's kind of a great update on Exodus, the cameras, the, the next gen camera that's coming out, you know, where your business, where you feel your business is heading. Now talk to us a little bit about this annual event that you guys put on called velvet fest. Oh yeah, dude. <laughs> uh, velvet fest, man. You know, we talked a little bit about it last year because I think you call it the Velvet Rut, right? Yep. And, yep. and we kind of call Velvet Fest what it is because, honestly, this time of year, we're all kind of, you know, cooking out and hanging out and grilling out. And 
and it kind of is like it's like a festival countdown to another whitetail season you know every week that i pull pictures and i see antlers growing and i think my favorite time of year is the build up to another season even more so than the grind you know the the day-to-day hunting um there's just that anticipation thing and last year we were kind of sitting around um early may and we we said you know we should we should kind of celebrate that a little bit on social media and so we launched kind of the campaign velvet fest it's a hashtag on instagram facebook that kind of thing and what we do is we do monthly giveaways of trail cameras and stick and picks and all kinds of gear over at our uh, facebook page and instagram page and the only the the simple way to enter is you just tag pictures of out and about planting food plots pulling cameras um doing habitat work whatever if you're out and about doing whitetail stuff in the summer you post a picture of it you tag it with velvet fest hashtag then uh, you get entered in our contest and we give away a bunch of stuff and it's pretty cool we actually kick it off this thursday with a flash sale over at our website exodusoutdoorgear.com and we're going to announce that on our facebook page here uh, uh tuesday or wednesday and uh we'll send out an email to our email subscribers so it's just kind of a it's just kind of an added added little fun thing to help kind of keep everybody connected through the summer as we all kind of get ready for for another build up to what we love to do. You know, just by you <laughs> talking about velvet bucks, I'm like in my chair tapping my foot real fast. Really <laughs> I you know, I'm I'm jacked for this season. Uh just I don't know, just like I am every season I say the same damn thing, but uh I am I'm I'm pretty, I'm pretty fired up to see what's going to, uh, pop up on trail cameras come, you know, early July, man. How, how about you? Do you, is hey. there, is there one particular buck that you can't stop thinking about this year? Well, there's two really one, okay. the, the buck that I shot last year that I have, a, I have not found. I mean, oh, that's I right. Guy, I forgot about that. Wait, wait, thought before we, put we go get shot on him. Tell, tell, tell me that story real quick. What happened last year? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's not a real quick story, but I'll try to put it in a quick format. Um, I'd been hunting this deer we call Caesar for two years, knowing about him for, you know, about three. And uh, just a gnarly old big woods deer, like had this awesome long main beam, heavy mass frame. Um, and don't know quite how old the deer was, but we, we figured he was older than six uh, because when we first found out about him, he was kind of like the top dog already and just a gnarly-looking old buck. So we figured he was older than six when I when I shot him, but he lived in literally a 100,000-acre block of timber in this place that we hunt in Ohio. and um, It's just one of those places where there are freaking giant deer but they are the hardest animals that I've ever hunted in my entire life because they just know their freaking territory like like the back of their hand. They live and die by it. And the hills that we hunt them in, just the wind is stupid. I mean, it really is. The wind just swirls 24-7. I mean, that's all it does. And so what we kind of figured out was, and I think we talked about this a little bit on the show before, was this whole idea of reoccurring deer patterns year after year and you know i don't know the science of it all i think it probably has something to do with does going to estrus almost on the exact day every year and i think once an old buck got lucky 
one time, he doesn't forget that. Yeah. And I think that he knows, like, okay, it's that time of year again. Those does over there are going in. And every year for like two weeks, this buck would come in and he would just camp out in this one area. And all throughout the rest of the year was nothing but does. So it had to have been, you know, a family group of does that just went in at the same time every year. Well, not last year, but the year before, we had pictures of that deer November 3rd in daylight. First time we'd ever gotten daylight pictures of it. Um, this year, I said, you know, if we're looking at everything, and we were, Chad and I were kind of trying to hunt by the moon this year. And so we looked at, we, it was like October 20th, we looked at the moon chart, and we were like, well, if this whole red moon thing's real, November 4th at 530, I'll shoot Caesar. Dude. <laughs> November 4th, we were trying to figure out where to hunt, and I realized that it was the red moon, and then I had said that, and we go in to this deer Caesar's area with stands on our back. We checked the camera. The deer was there the night before for the first time all year. Didn't even know if he was alive. He was alive, and we caught, we got pictures of him the night before. Hang stands on the downwind side of this scrape. On the down, We were within 100 yards of his bed. And I jokingly looked at Chad when we got all set up, and I was like, all right, we got about an hour and a half because he'll be here at 5.30, you know. <laughs> 5.24, I jokingly look at Chad and was like, oh, it's about time, you know. And Chad looks at me and goes, Matt, shoot her right there. And that deer was 35 <laughs> yards away. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. And the deer, we had it all planned out. Like he was going to go down this scrape line, and I didn't even have to stand up, you know, kind of like shooting my left. I was just going to stay seated, and, uh, <laughs> and of course, the deer just didn't do that. And he works the scrape, and he comes literally straight at us. And we were in the only trees that we could get in, so we were like nine feet off the ground. And uh, <laughs> we were in two separate trees, nine feet off the ground, little like four-inch trees, you know. And this freaking 160-inch deer comes straight at us, and I have to stand up with this deer literally like five yards and nine feet underneath of me and <laughs> got all discombobulated. Well, the deer goes out and I stand up and turn around and draw back again on him and he hears me. And instead of like getting spooked up, he just kind of nonchalantly turns back broadside and looks up at me like, huh? <laughs> and I shot this deer, man. I thought he was dead. Like we celebrated, like you can imagine, you know, hunting yeah. a deer like that. We, we celebrated like crazy. And, uh, I don't know, we, we went back in the next morning and followed one of the best blood trails that I've ever seen and just didn't end in a deer. We searched for days into months. I mean, we, we shed hunted for that deer for days. Uh, it just, it baffles me. So this year I'm really, really kind of like, you know, deep down inside me, I think he's dead, but you know, there's like that fairy tale wanting him to still be alive and going back in there and shooting him you know, the second year, but we'll see. I don't know. Well, I tell you what, uh, I shot a giant deer once and I thought, you know, Oh, I, I can't recover him, but I, I thought, I think he's going to die. He ends up showing back on the trail camera that next year and, uh, ends up getting shot by, by the neighbor, but you'll be surprised what these, what these deer can take. And then, and live. I know, man, it's crazy. it's crazy. Let me ask you this. Did you ever get pictures of Tupac that year after like the same year you shot him? Uh, no, I didn't because 
I didn't have picture. I didn't have trail cameras in that part of the farm because gotcha. there was people all over it. Right. Gotcha. So I ended up taking my uh, cameras out of that uh, section of, of the, of the woods just so, you know, just so I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want them to get stolen. And, uh, that morning that I went into that set, it was, I was late getting in. And, uh, so I'm like, okay, I don't want to have to go through three gates. I'm just going to park on the road and go into this certain little area. Sure enough, he shows up November 24th. And, uh, that's when I was filming and I tried to film me shoot, film myself, shoot him. He walked through one of my shooting lanes and then I took this really horrible shot and, uh, yeah, the rest the rest from that is kind of history. Didn't kill. It's about me. when you. It's when you feel like throwing a two thousand dollar camera about as far as you can throw it. <laughs> well, that <laughs> was the exact day where I said I'm never going to film or let filming, if I'm self filming, be a priority over actual hunting. So I hear you, dude. I hear you. So unless there's a camera yeah, in the tree with me, I'm never going to do that again. I hear you. Yeah, so that deer, man, that's 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 the one that if it somehow worked out to where he was alive, and I would spend every waking moment that I could hunting that deer. But then there's another deer that was that was well, actually, it's kind of more of an area. I have two deer that are pushing 170 in one area that's about 500 acres in this big woods track. That for some reason is just two giant deer that that love to hang out there and. So that area I'll be focused on. And then this new farm, you know, I'm really hoping that, right. you know, another 220-inch deer or something like that. <laughs> You're not asking for much, <laughs> just 220. Uh, yeah, you know. So and all these all these deer are in Ohio, right? Yeah. I, you know, I may make a trip to Missouri to a buddy of mine's farm out there for early season. But uh, I have not filled my tag in Ohio since I moved here. And I've kind of decided that this year I need to quit being dumb and trying to hunt three different states whenever I, you know, I need to fill one tag first. Right. Right. So, you know, you said you had three deer that are kind of on your hit list. Is it those three deer or nothing? Or is, is, I don't know, are you going to give other bucks the option to get shot or are you kind of set in, you know, focusing on the ones you've already had experience or encounters with. You know, I'm going to go different this year because usually it is that way. Usually it's like I want one of these two deer and it always gets me burned. And, uh, you know, I just haven't killed enough big deer to be that picky. You know, this industry makes you want to be like, you know, master hunter. But I'm just not there yet, dude. I got I to gotta kill some bucks. And <laughs> right. this year I'm killing a buck at least. <laughs> Right. Some of the best advice I ever got, I, when I was chasing that 210 incher, uh, I chased him for like five years. I ate my tag for four years in a row and I had a buddy come up to me and he's, cause I was, I passed like 150 inch 10 pointer one year, a four year old. And he's like, what the hell are you doing? Idiot. <laughs> he's like, you've never shot a 150 before. You've never shot Dude, a I- 140 before, like a 145 before shoot those deer and build your way up or you're going to yeah. waste a lot of time in the timber not learning how to seal the deal. So sure enough, when that 210-incher came out, I had buck fever real bad, right? So I don't know. I don't know. Dude, I hear you, man. I'm the same way. Like I've passed 
since I moved to Ohio, I've passed like 14 bucks that would have been my biggest one to date. Right. And I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> no, no. This year, let's see, this year my buck was a, I, I never measured him officially, but I'm going to have to guess low 140s, right? And maybe yeah. maybe mid 140s, I'm not sure. Uh, I'll, I'll probably never score him because he's not, like he's not giant, but he's a four-year-old, and that was my goal this year. I'm going to shoot a four-year-old buck or older, a mature buck. Yeah, and that's what I set my standards for last year. I'm not 100% sure what my standards are going to be this upcoming year because you know I'll make that decision when you know September gets here and whether or not the bucks that I have all through the summer are sticking around or if they're leaving or whatnot. But is that how? Is that in the past how you've made your decisions is, is trail camera Intel or is yeah. you know, all of a sudden a buck comes through that you've never seen before, but he's, you know, maybe he's 140 and he's a four year old. Is he getting an arrow? Yeah, that's kind of how it works for me. Like I'm not, I'm not going the way we hunt in the big woods, like the deer densities are a little lower. So typically like if you go in after a certain buck you're not going to be surprised very often if that makes sense. Like if I go in after a 170, it's probably going to be him or nobody because there just aren't a lot of other bucks running around. Right. But um but no, I, my goal it, it all changes obviously in like, you know, November 7th through the 15th. That's when we typically have bucks running around that I end up making stupid decisions to pass because I'm like, well, it's November 7th, you know, my bucks going to show up anytime. <laughs> and that's kind of what gets me is this year for me, like if he's 140 and four years old, like he's getting an arrow, you know? And, and that's a big freaking deer. Like, (laughs) you know, I had to keep reminding myself, like that's, that's nothing to shake a stick at. Right. You know, I think you you get around people like, you know, we've talked a little bit about the DeQuistos and they're, they're friends of mine. And, um, Ben Rising, my friend here in Ohio, who killed three deer over 180 last year. Like, you get around guys like that, and you're like, well, I gotta, you know, I can't be shooting this. But the funny thing is, most of those guys like that, they don't care what you shoot. Like, they're just in it for themselves. Like, you know what I mean? Like, they do things to make themselves happy, not anybody else. Right. Because if you're hunting giant deer just to please your buddies, you're not as serious about it as as these guys are, I promise. Because it's personal to them. To me, it's like, Whatever your personal journey is, go right. do that, you know? Right, right. And that's that's one thing I kind of, uh, it was a while ago, I fell into that whole big, you know, got to be big antlers, you know, it's got, I, I got to be chasing the biggest, baddest buck, you know, for me to somehow feel, I don't know, like worthy in, I guess, it was dumb back when I was filming, you know, it's like, Hey man, if I ever want to, if I want to ever want to do something, I gotta, I gotta shoot a giant buck. And that's the biggest yeah. crock of shit these days that, you know, it's almost like a big dick contest, right? <laughs> it's like, Hey man, I shot a, I shot a 180 this year. What'd you shoot? Oh, I just shot a 140. Hmm. You know, like, <laughs> it's like who gives a shit if it makes you happy? That's what it's all about, and that's like the message, if anything, that I want to portray. Dude, I totally agree. And you know what's funny, too, is like the guys that are going to get on you, like if you ever get on Facebook you know, and post a picture of a 130-inch deer, <laughs> somebody's going to be like, I would have let him walk. Yeah, yeah. And typically you go to that guy's profile, 
and he's killed like one giant deer and he thinks that he's like the big you know macho hunter now it's funny how this just this whole community man it's it's changed so much over the last 10 years it's and i think we're all guilty of it from time to time like oh yeah nobody's gonna you can't tell me that anybody doesn't sit around and think i want to kill a giant deer right oh everybody does everybody does and you want to be known as that guy that kills giant deer like we all do like that's part of being in this you know brotherhood is you want to be like you want to be respected but at the same time like that's not why we all started hunting we all started hunting because it was fun you know right and that's one thing that i think you know in the industry itself there's so much focus on antlers that I think if for, for new hunters, you know, let's say we, we get a guy and, uh, he's new to hunting. Uh, he feels that there's a little portion of him that feels like, man, I don't know. Should I shoot this? Should I shoot this buck? You know, yeah. and it may be his first buck ever. So he holds out and he may, he may, may not shoot anything the first year. So to that guy, shoot it. If it makes you happy. I totally agree, man. I also think like when you kill something, be happy about it. Like, don't, oh, yeah. you know what I think pisses me off more than anything else right now that like it's a trend in our industry <laughs> is that when somebody kills like a hundred inch deer, that's clearly three years old or two years old or whatever. They have right. to be like, well, I've known this deer for five years, you know, like <laughs> or, sometimes or, that's true. I get it. Yeah. But more often than not, you just kill a two year old. Be proud of it, dude. Like if that, right. if that deer got your boat, you know, engine running, like, <laughs> <laughs> if you here's, a, if you post the picture tomorrow and you kill like a 90 inch deer and you're like hell yeah like best hunt i've ever been on i'm freaking right there with you oh yeah but when these guys you know kill a small deer and they feel like embarrassed of it man i hate that we're in that place where you have to be embarrassed of a deer my favorite is when this they're hunting out of a ground blind and it's easy to tell that the buck is two years old three years old not mature still has that rectangle body it has it's an eight pointer or maybe it's a nine pointer and they shoot it and they're like great management buck great management Uh, oh yeah great great call buck (laughs) yeah we just uh, help improve genetics and then every time i do i i hear that i instantly go back to the conversation that i had with um, the guys from mississippi state on my podcast and on the wired to hunt podcast where they they're both just like uh that does nothing to improve antler quality no it doesn't and if you want to kill that deer like be freaking happy about it don't like don't act like you were (laughs) taking out the trash or something right well i had to kill this one because the outfitter needed it needed me to take it out we had this guy i was on a lease two or three years ago and we had this guy on there that um I passed this one deer. It was a two-year-old deer. It was like 125, 130-inch two-year-old. Beautiful buck. Passed him at like five yards like three different times. And the deer was just a beautiful young deer. And and it was right when I had moved to Ohio. And at the time, like that was still a pretty good-sized deer, like rack-wise for me. And so it was like I felt pretty proud of myself passing a deer like that, you know. And um, So I, this was probably actually like four years ago. I can't remember. But – um Anyways, this guy shoots him and uh, on our lease and 
I like get back to camp to like see the deer. And you know, when somebody shoots a deer, you're all supposed to be on the same mindset. Somebody shoots a deer that you passed. It's like, Oh girl, you know, like mutter under your breath a bit. But at the same time, like somebody chose to shoot a deer, you want to be happy for him. And I get back to camp and he's like, yeah, just a trashy little eight point was never going to be anything more than that. And I wanted to punch (laughs) the guy in the face. Like, dude, like that deer could have been a freaking giant. Right. Right. Oh, well, all, all part of the, of, of the struggle, right? Oh my gosh. I know, man. I'm I'm lucky where I don't have to like, I share hunting property with people, but I never really see what they kill, um, or, or harvest. So it's kind of one of those things where I just assume if a, if a buck shows up two years in a row on trail camera, then doesn't show up the next year that either, one of the other guys shot him or the, uh, you know, or the shotgun hunters got him, or he just decided to completely relocate because the farm I hunt has a little bit too much pressure for, uh, for that particular deer. But it is what it is, man. It's like, I, I'm just so happy that when no October comes around, November comes around, I can take off work. I have the ability to take off work. I have a wife who is kick-ass enough with me leaving the family for two weeks and going and enjoying what I love to do for a long period of time. Dude, you got it made, man. You got two kids too, right? Yeah, I got a four-year-old, almost five-year-old, and a almost three-year-old. So right. they are uh, – I would like to be, but um, – <laughs> Don't we'll see if my wife you, listens to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I got tricked. I got tricked into it, and I tell my wife that I got tricked into that uh, third kid coming September twenty eighth or whatever. So I know, dude. Uh, well, we talked about it. That's when my daughter was born, and that's opening day here in Ohio. So every year now, I have a birthday party on opening day. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully, pretty soon, your daughter can spend uh, her birthday party maybe in a tree stand with you. That could that's be your gift to her. Man. She's kind of like a. She's kind of got some fire in her, you know. How like some girls are kind of like tomboyish. She's kind of like that, so I'm hoping. I'm hoping she. Uh, I'm hoping that becomes like a yearly tradition for us. But, uh, well, but my wife, I, we had a we had a conversation about this like six months ago, and and I was like, you know, I think I might like to move to Iowa. And yeah. she was like, she thought about it for a second. And she was like, you know. I think I might like to have a third baby. <laughs> I was like, I think I might stay in Ohio. Oh, that was a good move on her part, man. That was awesome. Oh my God. Uh, that's uh, Now here's the deal. If you found a place for sale, it was affordable, right? It was in big buck country and you could go there and buy the house and you'd, you'd be there within you know, in time for the season to start and you'd be able to get a residence tag, all that worked out just fine. But the take was that you had to have a third kid. Would, would you do it? Honestly, I think I would. I really do think I would. Wow. Now, so that, that, you know, your entire life, your third child would be known as a bargaining chip. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, what's funny though, is when she said that to me, when we were when we were there, when we had that conversation, I was like, done. <laughs> right, right. But then, you know, we start thinking about like, well, then, you know, we're nine hours from grandparents instead of one or, right. you know, that kind of thing. So, right. And there's big bucks in Ohio too. So 
No doubt. I just, man, there's something about Iowa when you go out there, you know, you just, there's some kind of energy. I really like farming. Like I, I don't know, like farming is kind of a hard thing to get into later in life, but I just really like being around it. And I'd love to, I'd love to like do a small farming operation someday. So where I'm at in Ohio is not, not really like that. So I just, I kind of like, like Iowa every time I go out there. Yeah, it's it's fun. One thing that, you know, yes, we have less hunters, we have higher quality of deer, but I think one, there's one thing that a lot of people, you know, they think, okay, well, I'm going to I'm going to come to Iowa and I'm just going to wait and I'm going to shoot a booner. Well, yeah. that may that may be if you have a good farm, but no a, a really good farm, but just like every other state, you are you are sharing a property with somebody. If you're going to hunt public ground, which we have less of in Iowa, I think 95 or 96% of Iowa is privately owned, right? So that only leaves a small portion for public hunters. And those, those public lands are concentrated. So everybody, uh, my buddy lives down in uh, Southern Iowa and he has a, uh, he lives next to this huge forest that's down there, public land, really good bucks kill out of it every year. But driving down the road there after I, I took my buck down there cause he took pictures for me, but you're talking about, I saw Florida. I saw Georgia, West Virginia. <laughs> I saw Missouri because it was right on the border, all these different license plates. So guys are flocking from everywhere to come to these public grounds. And even on the private grounds, that you're still fighting guys. I fight three, sometimes four different hunters on, on well, my 300 acres that I have access to. And one thing people don't think about, like with that, with that tag is like, yeah, you got limited, you got such limited access, but when a guy pays $550 for a tag, he's shooting something when he goes home. Right. You know what I mean? If it's the last right. day and a 120 walks by, he's shooting it. Right. And uh, I totally agree with that. I think, I think the draw to Iowa for me too is like, being around this industry for the amount of time that I have now, two years, you meet a lot of people. And it's funny how many of them are kind of in that Iowa, Illinois, you know, like that, that tri-state area there. And, you know, you meet so many friends that it's like, Oh, it'd be cool to be close to all these people. And like, like Johnny, you know, Johnny Mulligan and getting to know him this year and they just made the move. So I kind of had this conversation with him and (laughs) Ben Harshine, you know, he moved from, mountain country in in eastern pa i'm from or uh, western pa and i'm from western maryland you know kind of you hear a lot of similar stories to yours and it's kind of like it's almost like going to hollywood or something whenever you're (laughs) (laughs) i don't know oh a hollywood where nobody recognizes you (laughs) (laughs) exactly nobody recognizes you and uh the guys who are really killing the big bucks uh, nobody knows about so exactly oh that that reminds me of a story so we were having this conversation, me and my buddy, Ryan, he, he filmed me for several years and then I returned the favor and let him hunt, uh, Iowa. And then that year he ended up shooting like a 180 in the antler. Dude, that deer was uh, a giant. I know. I still have dreams about that buck and I wasn't even hunting him that year. <laughs> anyway, anyway, um, so we're, we're driving around, you know, we're thinking about, man, you know, who are some of the the biggest buck killers that are out there, right? And, you know, Andre comes up, Dan Infault comes up, um, you know, some, somebody like, uh, um, 
oh, I guess, I guess Lee Lakoski, uh, mm-hmm. Kiskis, you know, some of those guys who have some winky. Yeah. Winky. Yep. Yep. And then we're driving down this road and it's this house that looks like it's been added on to seven different times throughout the years. <laughs> and he has his blinds open and the kitchen lights on it's dark and he has an entire wall full of deer that look like just from just from looking at it the smallest deer on the wall is probably 150 all the way up to <laughs> well over 200 and it's a he's just an old farmer who muzzleload hunts every year doesn't shotgun doesn't bow hunt and over his tenure of living on that farm he has shot all these giant deer and I had a conversation with him one day and he said, and I, I was shed hunting a piece of property that bordered up to his property and he was out there on his four wheeler and I walk up to the fence and he comes up to the fence and I'm, we start having this conversation. He says he doesn't even touch deer anymore until they're seven years old. He doesn't care what their antler <laughs> size is. He's not going to, he's not going to pull the trigger on a deer. So that tells me that he's been following some of these deer for long periods of time. He knows them. He's educated about them, but he doesn't tell a soul about them, right? So, yep. and, and there's thousands of people like that. So many tens people, of thousands especially of people like that, especially in states and in places like I really believe, like in Iowa, yeah. just like in Ohio or Illinois, there are places where there are big deer, and there are places where there aren't big deer. And the people that grew up in these places where there are really big deer. That's not as big a deal to them as it was to me where I grew up where there weren't big deer, you know? It's like I have this holy grail type thing of like, you know, this 180 plus inch deer that I want to kill. And then I, like, for instance, I was, uh, ran into a guy the other day that was kind of struck up a conversation with him at the gas station and he was talking about deer and, and we kind of, we knew somebody in common, like, you know, like, I don't even remember how we started talking, but then I was like, yeah, over there off that road. And he's like, yeah, I got a buddy that lives, you know, like that kind of thing. And, yeah. and, uh, and we happened to know the same guy and, and, uh, I was like, yeah, you know, I used to hunt on that farm and, and he's like, yeah, I grew up hunting that farm. And, and a guy that literally like is driving like a 1980s pickup truck and <laughs> it's probably shooting like a PSE Nova or something like that. Like, you know what I mean? Like, right. Like that does not care about all the stuff that we care about because we're, right. you know, involved in the industry. Right. And he's like, yeah, you know, um, yeah, I got, uh, you know, we were talking about deer and he's like, yeah, you know, well, and I was like, that was a giant that was so-and-so killed, you know, over mm-hmm. 200. And he was like, yeah, He's like, you know, I've killed three over over two hundred, and, <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> like, you just dropped that in conversation, <laughs> right? And then, right. Like, and it just and doesn't even have pictures of him on his phone. Like, I'm asking yeah. him about him, like, well, let's see him, and he's like, oh, I don't, I don't got any. He said, I'd have to go home and take a picture on my wall. <laughs> it's and like that. By him saying that, that put him in an elite group of people who are probably not even in I mean how many people out there do you think have killed 3 deer over 200 inches 50 50 bow hunters you think there's 50 I know 
I've met a lot of people, and I can only count on my hand right now, maybe four. Four four people that have killed. Okay, Stan Potts is one of them. Uh, Adam Hayes is one of them. So there's two right there. And then nope. this guy this guy that you've talked to, <laughs> Joe Blow from middle of nowhere, United States, you know. So I don't know. I wonder if it's I wonder if that is on the over under, do you feel that it's over twenty? Twenty people have killed Maybe. Maybe. And here's the thing, like are we talking growth score? Are we talk you know what I mean? Because like yeah. for instance, our business partner in Exodus, one of our kind of silent partners, we have four partners in Exodus. One of them is silent. One of them runs our day-to-day operations um, as far as like customer service calls. That's Chad's brother, Steve. And then there's Chad and me. Our silent business partner has killed three deer over 200 inches gross. But yeah. nobody knows his name. You know, you would have, when I first started talking to him, I would have never guessed that. Right. So it's funny how, but you know, they're not 300 net or not, they're not 200 net. So it's yeah. like, I don't know, (laughs) even 200 gross. Like, are there 20 people? Maybe, man, I, I, that whole net things BS to me, man. I tell you, if you shoot, if I shoot a deer and it's, you know, it's 200 even flat gross. I am telling everybody if they ever ask, I'm not going to be walking around with a t-shirt that says, Hey, I killed a 200 inch deer. But <laughs> I'm going to be, if someone goes, ask what that deer measure? Oh, he's 200. You know, yeah. I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk about net score. Who does that? I mean, I, I know, know like, well, even dumb John, our, our, our silent partner, his, um, one of his deer is like 198, you know, yeah. typical. And he, and he won't even tell you that he's killed three 200 inch deer. I'm like, no, you've killed three 200, like 198. Come on, let's give it, let's give it to him. You know, like, <laughs> <Too humble. laughs> yeah, but it's funny, man. I I'm telling you. And you know, what's also comical too, is like the more I go on the trade show circuit and we have, you know, we have, um, customers that we get pretty close with. It's crazy how many like pretty close to walking world record deer are out there too. Cause people show us pictures all the time. Like, don't show anybody, but I'm after this one this year. And it's like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, where it, are these deer? Right, right. I had one year, one year, the biggest deer I've ever had on, well, not the biggest scoring deer, but the biggest typical I've ever had on trail camera. I, it's hard for me to tell, but I've had guys tell me anywhere from 190 to 200. And like one guy goes, that, that deer's 205. Whether he was or not, I don't know. typical 10 pointer. And I thought I was going to shit my pants. If that deer ever walked by, (laughs) I would, I wouldn't have even had a shot at him. I would have just blacked out, passed out in my tree stand. You ever seen those, uh, you ever seen those YouTube videos of the kids? They send them up in that little moon rocket thing and they scream and then they pass out and they're bouncing around up there. And then they, they come back down. That would be me, but in a tree stand. Dude, I hear you, man. I hear you. You know what's beautiful about hunting the big woods that like you have like five seconds. Yeah. Like that deer that came in this past year, like there were there was literally like five seconds to even think to draw your yeah. bow and like get an arrow in it. If I had to hunt all the time in the Midwest like you guys do, and it was like like if I ever had to watch a deer, like a big deer come from three hundred yards out or something like that, like I would be the same way. Like it, it wouldn't even be 
I wouldn't even be able to control myself. Right. Right. It's funny, man. I love it. I love it. Yeah. And that's, and those are all like all those things compound up until, you know, opening day or whenever the first time that, you know, that we get into the stands and that's why we do it. Right, man. Absolutely, dude. I'm ready to do it again. That's right. Well, I tell you what, Mr. Klein, I've taken up enough of your uh, time today. I just want to say thanks for uh, your support with the podcast. And thank you very much for taking time to come on the show and BS with me today. Yeah, dude. Always happy to be here. And there you have it. Another podcast in the books. Huge shout out to the entire Exodus team and Matt for coming on the podcast. As always, if you guys want to find out more information about Exodus Outdoor Gear, visit ExodusOutdoorGear.com. And if you do decide to buy one of their trail cameras, use the discount code nine fingers that's the number nine followed by the word fingers no spaces and you will receive twenty dollars off of your purchase and that is valid also for the next generation camera the uh the newest version so take advantage of that my friends other than that huge shout out to the rest of the partners deer lab lone wolf gearhead wasp or ozonics and ripcord uh please go check out those partners as well please check me out on facebook twitter and instagram if you want to be on the podcast hit me up either on the contact form on ninefingerchronicles.com or you can message me via facebook i will respond either way whether you want to do a product review whether you want to do a hunter profile whether you want to do a bs session heck i don't care uh just go ahead and reach out to me and we can make maybe make it happen other than that, guys, remember to uh, sign up for the National Deer Alliance. It's free, and you get a ton of information. And uh, we're going pretty long today, but I just want to say thank you again to each and every one of you. And if you're in a tree, please wear your damn safety harness.